Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Today's recording is quite a personal one. I know I've spoken at length about our old farm, but Masitwi was a magical, otherworldly place. Not just for me, but I think for everyone involved with the farm. Okay, I'm sure the farm workers never found it otherworldly, but you know what I mean. Unlike most farms in the Ambukwis district, which, to be fair were fairly high up and temperate. The farms in the Victory Block, where we lived, were 2,000 foot lower. In fact, it dropped 2,000 foot in just 20-odd miles. And at first glance, the V-Block, as the Victory Block was known, appeared to be almost uninhabited. I think that's what I loved about it. Across the Great Dyke and Ambukwis, the land appeared to have been worked by humans for generations. Whereas down here, it was a different country. There was a lot of virgin bush in the veed block, but on closer scrutiny you could just make out the small arable lands which broke up the horizon in somewhat haphazard intervals haphazard because they followed the contours of the hills, nature rather than nurture. The fields and lands of Mbukwis were huge, flat and, by and large, oblong. Down here, granite copies and large termite mounds sporting massive euphorbia trees and thorn bushes were scattered throughout the infrequent arable fields, making it near impossible to use large machinery. Combine harvesters were largely useless in this kind of terrain, the fields being quite small and often quite strange shapes, often sloping down to a donga or a river. I think that the men who made this part of the world their home were romantic rather than practical, or perhaps romantic and practical in that order. And in this lay its beauty and its magic. Of the 13,000 acres purchased by my father in the 1950s, barely 3,000 was arable. The rest was virgin bush and woodland. To a farmer with ambition, it must have seemed like a form of punishment. But oddly to Woody, my dad, the challenge far surpassed the financial benefits. Well, okay, perhaps a little naive, but I honestly think my dad was far more adventurous, if not, as I said previously, romantic when it came to his terroir. Far more so than my mother. While she adored the rugged country, she would have preferred the cooler, wetter country across the dike. Hewing, stumping, levelling, fencing, ridging, grading and planting, 
From dawn until dusk, it was a constant battle between man and nature, and it was here that Woody decided to bring his young bride and start a family. Divided into three sections, this 13,000-acre land was my home from my birth in 1962 until I left some 18 years later. Of course, I was at boarding school for much of that time, but that just made being at home far more exotic. The land sits in a low basin called the Victory Block which was opened up to settlers and farmers after World War II. From the cool and Bukwis Plateau, relatively high at 5,000 foot, the bumpy dirt road drops 2,000 foot into the V-block. Whereas Mbukwis has low, soft, grassy, undulating hills, coniferous plantations and wide arable lands that almost look like parts of Scotland, Indeed, one farm was even called Galloway Estates. The road winds its way down through the mysterious Birkdale Pass and the Great Dyke. The Great Dyke of Zimbabwe, which is up to 8 miles wide and about 330 miles long, is a layered, mafic intrusion of igneous, metal-bearing rock that has been dated to approximately 2.5 billion years old. The Birkdale Pass is steep-sided and lined with riverine forests of fern, stunted raisinberry trees, exotic and quite rare aloes found only along the northern dike, and rather strangely, non-indigenous date palms, supposedly the ancestors of pips spat out by Arab slave traders back in the 1700s. Crumbling stone-walled forts built for protection by Mashona people are testament to that ghastly trade and can be seen all around this area. But then, without warning, you emerge from the lush valley in the dike and you're confronted with a totally different world. All of a sudden, hot and humid, with rugged balancing rocks and copies, Small, uneven lands squeezed between thick, impassable indigenous masasa and monondo trees and mountain acacia woodland. Anyone interested in flora would adore this part of the world. Along the route, you'll spot an abundance of plant life, such as the towering aloe excelsa and the rare aloe ortholofa, found only along the dike. And then around Christmas time, the puff puff plants, Hemanthus cochineer, the African blood lily. The generic name Hemanthus is derived from the Greek word hema for blood, and cochineus is the Latin word for red or scarlet. The flowers consist of large globes of many slender red tubular flowers. I've never known anyone to be able to grow these plants commercially, but maybe I'm wrong. And of course, dotted around the bush, the national flower, the flame lily, Gloriosa superba, 
which is also the emblem of our junior school in Mbukwe's. In more recent years, there were wonderful scarlet swaths of an invasive red Mexican sunflower, Tithonia rotundifolia, shimmering in the lands like banks of poppies. Most farmers hate them and they're considered a weed. Occasionally, giant imposing euphorbias stand sentinel on the horizon. And paperbark albizia, their delicate skins peeling off like rice paper. White-trunked mountain acacias dominate the small rocky outcrops. And pure black ironwood trees, olea capensis, part of the olea or olive family, used for making the flutes for Scottish bagpipes. Our neighbour, Cyril Hall, was a Scottish champion bagpiper. I think he got his gold medal at the Highland Games. And occasionally would sell this wood for a few bob to be made into blowpipes. When the wind was right, we sometimes could hear the mournful sounds of Cyril's pipes floating across the valley when he practised. Sprouting in the fallow lands an edible African horned cucumber, or rather more tongue-twistingly known in Shona, and I know I'm going to get this wrong, the Magam Gam Gam Gam, or let's try that again, the Magam Gan Gam, the Magam Gan, oh, I've given up, and the inedible snake apple or poison apple, part of the nightshade family, and poetically known as the Motambereri. As we bounced around in the back of the Land Rover, clinging onto the railing for dear life, leaving behind the cold fir trees and pine trees so common around Mbukwi's school, the three of us kids always felt a sense of belonging as we entered the B block. First to go would be the shoes, then the shirts. It was always a thrill. My sister Mandy was always the first to chuck off the clothes. She was a total tomboy. The heat, the smell of wood smoke and cow dung and the sights along the road make you acutely aware of entering a new part of the country. As you emerge from the primordial forest of the Birkdale Pass, it's a bit like that movie journey to the center of the earth. Or perhaps more fittingly, some Indiana Jones set. You're suddenly in a different world. Of course, the names of the farms were hardly Raiders of the Lost Ark. The first farm beyond the dike on the left side was Birkdale, owned by Irley and Anton Howland. We would always be on the alert to spot wildlife in their private game reserve. Impala, warthog, ostrich, zebra, eland and even giraffe. This was the gateway to the V-block, and it just seemed fitting that wild animals should be the gatekeepers. 
from relative domesticity in Mbukwe's to the untamed bushveld of the V-block. On the right was Prangmare, owned by the Girdlestones, and much later the Steels, with their fantastic tall thatched house and hundreds of snarling inbred cats. They would fight for scraps around the dining room table, snarling and hissing. And I remember one time my mum and dad were having dinner and one of his cats gave birth beneath the table, then promptly began eating its babies. I kid you not. Trevor and June hardly battered an eyelid. I mean, how's that for eccentricity? Trevor was one of the first farmers in the district and was a great character although perhaps not the most successful farmer. I don't know, but he did quite enjoy his pre-prandial gin, followed by a post-prandial kip. But then, so did everyone else. He was eventually buried on top of a steep hill overlooking his farm. I reckon Trevor was laughing in his grave when his chums all nearly had heart attacks carrying that damn coffin up the steep rock face. Along from Prangmare were the Hendersons. John Hendy suffered from, well, I'm going to say it, mild narcolepsy. No, it doesn't involve dead bodies. Look it up. Anyway, he was in the habit of dropping off to sleep halfway through a conversation leaving rather embarrassing pregnant pauses during a dinner party. Interestingly, he always knew exactly what was going on and would jump straight back into a conversation as if nothing had happened. Fortunately, this affliction hadn't affected his driving. At least I don't think it did. Otherwise, those kids of his might have been pretty neurotic and highly strung. Mind you, nodding off at the steering wheel was nothing new in the V-block, Indeed, it may have been a criteria. Dave and Wendy Dolphin lived on Mount Fatigue, originally owned by Punch and Cynthia Norton. Cynthia was a fabulous blue-rinse Barbara Cartland type of woman who, not surprisingly, became the Vitriblock beautician. Mum would drive up there and put herself at the mercy of Cynthia's fluorescent drag queen eyeshadows. As a kid, I would watch fascinated as she painted Mum's face in the finest of 60s peacock hues. I remember how she instructed Lib to see her face like an artist's palette, though which artist exactly wasn't open to conjecture. Constable, Turner, Picasso... Probably Pollock. After observing Cynthia at work, it came as no surprise when later in life I found myself peering into the face of a drag queen whilst I studied her eye makeup in minute detail. And as a photographer often assigned to shoot fashion, I always had a fascination on big hair and a keen eye on how women applied makeup. Once past Cyril and Barbara Hall's farm, Brookfield, we drove over the Neroe River Bridge, more like a concrete drift that flooded each season. The raggedy kids from the compound would sprint out, waving and screaming next to the car. It was such a colonial scene, I suppose, but it was always a wonderful homecoming, signalling the beginning of the holes 
and the freedom from school rules, shoes, the constant smell of coal from the school boiler, not to mention the ghastly bland school food and the odious stench of boiled cabbage. It also, thankfully, signalled the end to that incessant, sinister sound of crows constantly arguing with one another like a witch's seminar. I read that the collective noun for crows is a murder of crows. Their mocking, lonely cawing always reminded me of school. Masitwi, thankfully, had no crows. Once over the drift and past the compound, you drive through half a mile of massive blue gums up to the barns and sheds and then up the hill to the house where we invariably would be greeted by our staff, Fred and Conda, starched whites and barefoot, yet another colonial scene, and of course, a pack of overexcited dogs. As mentioned before, our farm was divided into three sections. Gazing from the main house towards the other sections, you're almost bushwhacked by the view, a valley that stretches for miles from the rickety stables housing our two unruly horses, Pedro and Piccolo, down to a heavily wooded area called Mizindarindi. To the right, you can see the forested, hilly area known as Matimba, or Place of Wood whilst directly ahead of you, you're delighted by the majesty of massive granite dwellers forced from the earth millions of years ago, the bald copy reigning over all. And far in the distance, right on the horizon, the mauve ribbon of the great dike separating the V-block from Mvukwe's and civilization. The house was designed by my dad on the back of a fag packet. It was never perfection, God forbid, but it was entirely ours. Firing the bricks in a homemade kiln, using the clay from a termite mound, and using local granite for the foundations, the L-shaped house dominated the top of a rocky hill. Whitewashed walls, yellow windows, sea-green asbestos roof, and a Sonoya slate veranda, polished to perfection by Conda and smelling magnificently of cobra wax. The walls of the veranda were used to display all my dad's hunting trophies, buffalo, kudu, eland, impala and sable. A wobbly elephant foot side table stood on a tatty, well-worn zebra skin. Leopard skins on the wall shot on the farm and all incongruously blended in with my mother's Sanderson floral chintz and her P.J. Redoute botanical prints. This wonderful farmhouse, and the operative word being farm, was practical on the outside and elegant on the inside, and was a cool oasis from the intense hot African bush. Although not native to Mashonaland, we also had a huge fat sabi star, or desert azalea. Like the oleander, they have such poisonous sap that the bushmen use the poison for their arrows. Nothing is innocent in the garden of good and evil.
When I was young, my brother and I travelled down by train to the beautiful Jacarandaline city of Amtali in the Eastern Highlands, where we were picked up by my cousin, George Hume, and driven hundreds of kilometres to his massive million-acre ranch called Davuli near Chapinga. About 120 kilometres out of Amtali, a bizarre yet wonderful sight greets you, as you near the Sabi River. Having driven for mile upon mile past some pretty impressive boababs, suddenly out of nowhere, the massive steel arch structure of the Birchenough Bridge towers above the flat Mapani bushveld. You have to appreciate that you are quite literally in the middle of the bush. Designed by Rolf Freeman in 1935, who incidentally was the designer of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and in fact bears a very uncanny resemblance, although only two-thirds of the size, which is still pretty impressive, all things considered. This incredible piece of engineering was the third longest single-span suspension bridge in the world at the time, second only to the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and stood on the border of my cousin's land. And there it was, in the middle of nowhere. I have a feeling that my cousin George Hume's in-law, Mr. Bridges, had something to do with the construction. The Bridges were wealthy landowners who had extensive land in Argentina and Namibia. I'm not sure what drew them to this godforsaken part of the world. This was an area largely shunned by the European settlers of early Rhodesia, due largely, I would imagine, to its inhospitability. An almost total lack of infrastructure such as roads and railway lines, combined with incredible heat in summer, various wild and dangerous animals and disease, made it a bad choice when compared to the higher areas in the centre of the country. Freeman, the Birchenough Bridge designer, certainly got around and closer to home here in Hong Kong, worked on our own cross-harbour tunnel. Now, Davuli was a cattle ranch of some 25,000 head, but also had an abundance of wildlife. George and his glamorous wife, Madeline Bridges, who was born on Davuli, lived in the main house on the ranch. And I remember getting very excited because they had a pet leopard. It was on Davuli that George took me on my very first hunt. Never really the hunting, shooting, fishing type, as you all know. I went along with it, unfortunately wounding a young Impala ram. Note to self, stick to oil painting. The trackers and their dogs took three days to find the poor beast and put it down retrieving the tiny, teeny, stunted horns for me to take place next to my brother and father's massive trophies. Having decided that hunting wasn't my thing, my teary eyes then settled on slightly gentler pursuits, one of which was the retrieval and transplanting of a Sabi star hundreds of which dotted the dry felt around the ranch, their incredible vivid pink and white blooms casting a welcome hue across the otherwise grey bush, much of which had just been burnt to a cinder by a raging bushfire. 
Two nights earlier, we had joined about 50 ranch hands to try and beat it out with little success. I remember arriving back at the homestead, pitch black with soot and totally exhilarated, having been out all night fighting the inferno. Sabi stars look somewhat benign from the top. Gorgeous flowers and fat grey stumpy trunks, a bit like a miniature boabab. But beneath the surface they harbour a rhizome or bulbous root that grows to enormous massive diameters. A small six-inch plant might have a bulb the size of two or three rugby balls. Nobody told me this. And having started my mission, George and my brother Duncan looked on smirking as I spent the best part of a stifling hot afternoon digging out the root. But victorious! I now had to take it all the way back to Masitwi, some 700 miles away. Well, you're on your own there, grinned Duncan. Determined, I heaved and lugged the huge heavy plant onto the train and all the way back home across country, much to Duncan's amusement. The great white hunter, he sarcastically remarked, with absolute glee holding up his huge buck trophy. Now, back at home, the plant had thrived, growing to giant proportions and gave enjoyment and happy memories to everyone when it literally burst into bloom every season with its shocking pink flowers. After my parents lost their farm to Mugabe's thugs, the only plant Duncan went back to retrieve was that Sabi star. Happy Times Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye. <laughs>